according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me, if you would, in Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. We're going to cover verses 11 through 15 today. We're moving on to episode 5. It's going quickly, isn't it? In the post-resurrection ministry of Jesus Christ, the final segment of our uh, Harmony of the Gospels. We've got uh, just a handful of events between uh, the resurrection itself on Resurrection Sunday up through the Ascension. I believe we're also going to look at some uh, principles related to the session of Jesus Christ, what it means for him to be seated at the Father's right hand in his present ongoing role uh, as head of the church in the session at the right hand of God the Father. Um, But uh, until uh, then, we've got this event. The uh, soldiers are reporting. We've got the uh, Emmaus Road. There's two disciples on the Emmaus Road that Jesus will be speaking to. There's a couple of appearances uh, to the disciples uh, in uh, locked rooms with the doors closed. uh, That scares the willies out of them. Uh, Once when Doubting Thomas is gone, and then the second time when Doubting Thomas is there. There is a, um, a beach uh, morning episode where Jesus eats fish, of all the nasty, disgusting things. And, um, and he asks Peter if he loves me more than these, uh, the aspect there. So uh, just a handful of things left, and then we reach the ascension itself, uh, one of several ascensions. Uh, and I believe we're going to have to evaluate how many times Jesus did ascend, why it was we saw last week he told uh, Mary Magdalene, don't touch me, uh, for I have not yet ascended to my father. Uh, but then when he meets the other women in between the, the, the tomb and the room, they start touching him and he has no complaints there. Uh, when he meets Downing Thomas, he, he in fact commands Thomas. He says, touch me, reach your finger in here, feel the hole in my side and then feel the holes in my hands. And so he's very touchable at that point, but not when Mary Magdalene is laying hold of his feet. He says, stop clinging to me for I have not yet ascended to my father. And so the ascensions, plural, I think are worth our uh, consideration uh, to consider everything that had to be done with the various, uh, the various trips up, as it were. Okay, well, we're not going to deal with that today. I think we'll deal with that probably when uh, the Doubting Thomas episode comes into play, when he says, reach here, touch here, feel, see that a spirit does not have uh, flesh and bone as I have. All right, Matthew chapter 28, verses 11 through 15, the guards report of the resurrection. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer and ask the Father to bless our thinking. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the privilege we have to assemble together. Thank you for this study, Father, and the, all the details on this Easter Sunday on Sunday, April 5th, uh, 33 A.D., Father. And uh, not only are the women testifying, the disciples are testifying, even the enemies of our Lord are testifying. The soldiers are bearing witness to the resurrection of your Son, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we uh, thank you for that faithful witness. We thank you in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Let's look at verses 11 through 15 now. While they were on their way, while they were on their way, that backs up to verse 10, uh, really verse 11, 
No, verse 8, there it is. They left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. Remember, the women just took off like a shot, and immediately they had joy. Later on, they'll start to have fear, and they'll actually stop until Jesus meets them. Now, while they were on their way, those are the women, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. So, as we said, uh, we haven't seen those soldiers since verse 4 of this passage. They were basically left for dead. Uh, the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. So however many guards there were in this attachment, detachment, how many Roman soldiers there were at this point, they just fell over as if they were dead. And apparently they were just laying there while the women showed up, while Peter and John showed up, while they left, while the women left, while uh, so forth. Uh, probably then before Magdalene arrives is when the uh, these guards wake up and they go and report to the chief priest. Now, not all of them, some of them went into the city and reported to the chief priest. I imagine the rest of them uh, were afraid to show their faces or they actually went uh, and returned to their Roman command rather than reporting to the chief priests. Verse 12, and when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, you are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we are asleep. Here's the old disciples stole the body uh, lie. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. Okay, because, you know, when you start inventing lies, then you need lies to cover for the lies and you need uh, to coordinate your story with everybody. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. So this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. And is to this day. And, you know, Matthew claims that in his day. We could claim that in our day. <laughs> right? As is to this day. In 2013 AD, the story is still being told that the disciples stole the body. And... Uh, We'll talk about that as well. Okay, well, here it is. Pretty short episode. I expect we can knock it out in no time. First of all, we've only got four details we're going to glean out of this. Point one, some of the guard reported to the chief priests. Not all, but some. Which leaves us to uh, wonder what the rest of them were doing. Did they, were they just heading for the hills and going AWOL and deserting the Roman army and trying to find a, a better life somewhere else in anonymity? Um, or did they return back to the, uh, to the Roman fortress and uh, not say a word? We don't know. But evidently, uh, some of them felt the desire that uh, desertion was less risky <laughs> than reporting. All right, Evidently, desertion was less risky in the mind of those who did not report. And that presumes that those that did not um, report to the priests um, felt that desertion was less risky. The consequences of failing in their duty. But, I mean, they were, they were assigned to guard the tomb. They failed. They failed. The tomb, the stones rolled away. The tomb is now empty. And they can expect some, some tragic repercussions. You know, they can expect to be executed. Failure on guard duty would, would result in their death. Um, and so not reporting is, uh, is less risky than reporting at this point. 
you know, this supposes that those who did not join in the report just took off for the hills and, and disappeared. It may very well be that instead of reporting to the chief priests, they, they went to the, uh, to the Romans and uh, kept their trap shut. We'll talk about this. Because this particular guard detachment consists of Pilate's soldiers. These are Roman soldiers. I may not have been very clear on that in the previous episode when we were talking about the uh, the uh, Pharisees' desire or the high priest's desire to guard the tomb in the first place. We're going to go back and fix maybe what wasn't taught so well in that episode. So point B, this particular guard detachment consists of pilot soldiers on TDY to the Sanhedrin. If you don't know what TDY is, I'll explain it for you. Okay, But temporary duty, that's right. Meaning that this is not their normal duty assignment, but they are loaned out. They are on a temporary duty assignment. TDY. They are pilot soldiers that are, uh, dis- that are on TDY to the Sanhedrin. And um, I was not clear on this when we taught it uh, previously. When After the burial of Jesus, when the Sanhedrin went to Pilate and said, we need to secure this tomb because when that liar was alive, he said that on the third day he was going to rise again. And um, Pilate said, well, you have a guard. Go make it secure as, uh, you know, as, as best as you can. Um, we, we, or I taught it anyway at that point, that there's ambiguity in that statement, that it's not precisely clear. We'll talk about that here because it's, it's coming up in Matthew 27. I think it's much more clear than we gave it credit for uh, back in that episode. And uh, in my mind anyway, it's crystal clear, at least as of now. Um, because they say... Uh, if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. If those were temple guards, then they wouldn't be in trouble in, in any event. You know, Pilate would have no jurisdiction over them. Uh, they wouldn't be in trouble with Pilate if they were simply temple officers or temple guards. They have to be Roman guards that uh, they need protection against Pilate in uh, in that capacity. So, um, let's back up to chapter 27 and take a look at these guys when they were first assigned. We taught this in the previous uh, episode, the burial of Jesus. Um, or actually a few episodes ago, because this was before the, the uh, present sec- uh, segment. Matthew 27, 65 and 66. Uh, after he's buried... Uh, on the next day, verse 62, the day after the preparation, so you know what that means, it means the Sabbath, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate. So they seem to be working pretty hard on this particular Sabbath. And they said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days I'm to rise again. Therefore give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. That's the item we were discussing that for three days, after three days, until the third day, all equivalent expressions. Give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day, otherwise his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, he has risen from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. And there it is, okay? And uh, I think it's interesting, these, this brood of vipers is more fearful of his resurrection than the disciples. That uh, the disciples don't believe it, not until they're actually standing in the empty grave, you know, looking, looking down at the burial cloth, and then they finally believe, Peter and John finally believe. These guys, though, um, whether they believed it or didn't believe it, or who knows what was going through their satanic mind, they, uh, they wanted to uh, 
have this this tomb secure. They wanted to be guarded. They wanted no possibility. I suspect that their devious mind was thinking, well, what would we do in this circumstance? What kind of fraud would we perpetuate? What kind of what kind of deceit would we foster upon the people? And then they immediately ascribed that to the disciples, thinking, well, they've got to be just as twisted and devious as we are. Okay, I mean, in that the way satanic thinking works, they just assume that that you think the way they think, and that uh, you know if uh, if they've got a devious idea, then you probably have the same devious idea. We better get to it first. So anyway, so Pilate then said to them, and here's where I said at the time that there was ambiguity. I don't think there is. Pilate said to them, you have a guard. Go, make it as secure as you know how. Now you can take that a couple of different ways. And like I say, just in this chapter, you, you could take it a couple of different ways. When we get to today's class, I don't think you could take it those two different ways anymore because they're willing to cover with Pontius Pilate. But as we look at it here, Pilate said to them, well, you have a guard. He, what he could be saying is, well, you've got soldiers. You've got a guard. You've got the temple officers, the temple guards, the people that guard the treasury, the, the people that enforce the rules in the temple. You've got a guard. You take care of it. Quit bothering me. You've got a guard. Do your best. Do what you want to do. Okay? You could take it that way, or you could take it. Pilate said to them, you have a guard. I'm assigning to you this detachment. All right, you have a guard. Here's, here's a squad. Go and make it as secure as you know how. So you see why that's ambiguous? You could, you could go either direction. Either you have a guard like I'm giving you one right now, or, well, you have one already. What are you bothering me for? Okay. That ambiguity, though, I think is gone in chapter 28 because they make it very clear in verse 14 if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. Those would not be temple officers. Those would not be the huparetai, uh temple officers or, or, or treasury guards or, or uh, enforcers that uh, the, the Sanhedrin typically used. Okay, um, they wouldn't uh, they wouldn't uh, be uh, be worried about Pilate anyway. They'd be worried about the Sanhedrin. So I think that that expression in 28.14 solves the ambiguity from chapter 27 that uh, when Pilate says you have a guard, he's actually assigning them a detachment of Roman soldiers on TDY. Maybe not a complete, uh, obviously not a complete cohort or legion, but you know, a squad is, is reasonable. A, um, you know, a, uh, probably a, a, an officer, uh, a sergeant, and you know, half a dozen legionaries. All right. Now, what was their report? This I find beautiful. Point two, the guard's report is an admissible testimony. Point two in the outline, the guard's report is an admissible testimony. It is admissible in court of law. It is admissible to us today. This is very reliable testimony. The report of these guards. Not uh, hearsay in any respect. They are making a direct report of what they have observed. And highly reliable for our purposes as Christians uh, on an evangelistic basis, on an apologetic basis. Uh, because these are not friendlies. <laughs> these are not Christians. This is not believers that are, that are seeing what they want to see. Or believers that are trying to promote a myth or promote a lie. They are hostile. They are unbelievers. They are the adversary. 
They have been posted to keep this, to keep what's happening from happening. And when they testify to what does happen, it has all the credibility and more that you could ask for in a court of law. And so we call it admissible testimony. And in the laws of evidence, it is a highly credible testimony because it does not further their own goals. It is actually uh, confrontational to their own goals. It's not in their interest. to uh, the, the, the truth of what they're testifying does not uh, make them look good, certainly. So it's an admissible testimony. Now, let's look at this again. What do they report? We're told some of the guard came into the city and reported, what do they report? All that had happened. All that had happened. They made a positive report. They did not profess an ignorance as to what had happened. They did not profess an ignorance. They made a positive report of all that had happened. So sub-point A, they did not profess an ignorance as to what happened. This is what, uh, obviously, the skeptics want to uh, say today. Say, well, nobody really knows, right? Then they try to claim a skeptical uh, agnosticism. Well, you know, well, we know he was crucified, we knew he was buried, but after that, we don't really know. Did, you know, did, did they just guard the wrong tomb? Did, uh, was he not really dead? Was he just swooned and then he came, he woke up inside the tomb and then somehow was physically strong enough to push the stone himself? Um, did the disciples steal the body? All these other myths about what might have happened. And, uh, and this professed ignorance. Well, we don't really know. We don't really know. The guards aren't claiming that they don't know. The guards are not professing ignorance. Okay, and in a lot of respects, you know, that's the safest route for a guard. Well, I don't know what happened. <laughs> okay, um, well, you're supposed to know. You're accountable to know. And if you don't know, then we're just going to assume you were asleep. That's why you didn't know, and we're going to execute you. So, no, were you asleep? Why don't you know? No, I wasn't asleep. Well, then you do know. Tell me what happened. And um, so they're not going to profess ignorance. Not to the chief priests anyway. They'll, they'll profess ignorance after they talk to the chief priests. After they take their bribe, they will adopt the, the contrived story. But initially, they do not profess ignorance. They declare everything. They reported all that had happened. Hapanta ta genomena. Everything. Hapanta. Everything. All. All that had genomai come to be. Everything that had happened. Everything that had happened. Now, depending on what it means to be like a dead man, (laughs) in verse 4, everything that they were conscious to witness would have included the earthquake, the stone rolling, the seated angel, the shaking fear, and the likeness of death. In other words, verses 2, 3, and 4 as a minimum, they would have testified to verses 2, 3, and 4. All would include the earthquake, the stone rolling, the seated angel, the shaking fear, and the likeness of death. Five things in verses 2 through 4. That they would have clearly been eyewitness to. We then have to speculate, I guess, 
when they become like dead men, the guards shook for fear of him and became, for fear of him. So they saw the angel sitting there on the stone. All right. So this is what they this is what they observed. Behold, a severe earthquake had occurred. They can testify to that to the Sanhedrin. Massive earthquake. And an angel of the Lord descended from heaven. And they see this guy. And he rolled away the stone. One guy rolled away this massive stone that takes six, uh, you know, six human adult men to move it. Four to six men. But one angel by himself. Probably one-handed. <laughs> right? Maybe just with his pinky. You know, one, one finger just rolls the thing aside like a child's toy or something. And uh, his appearance was like lightning. And his clothing was white as snow. His appearance was like lightning. You know, as you know, the flashing of his face or, or what's that exactly like? Well, don't know. Like lightning. His clothing was white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him. I believe that's included in the all things that happened. Shaking for fear is something that Ginnemai happened. And they reported, Hapanta, everything that happened. So brutal honesty. Man, we were terrified. Absolutely terrified. This lightning guy shows up, glowing white. He's white, he's flashing, his clothes are white. And he rolled that stone away all by himself. And then he sat on it. <laughs> okay. You know, how big was this stone? And how did he, did he just fly up to the top of it? How did he get to the top of that stone? And then they became like dead men. Now, depending on how you take dead men, I believe the report would not likely specify any of the women who visited, but maybe it did. Maybe it did. Depends on how we understand the idiom became like dead men. The report would not likely, but possibly could, specify any of the women who visited. Uh, I've seen a number of corpses that the eyes are wide open. Now they're not moving. They're just laying there. They're pretty stiff. But their eyes are wide open. And so if they're not actually dead, they're just like dead men, and their eyes are wide open while they're laying there, it's possible they saw the women show up. It's possible they saw Peter and John in their foot race. It's possible they saw the in and out. It's possible that they saw that. In fact, it's probably, probably good if they did see all that. That they saw that every woman that came in and came out was not carrying a body. Peter and John that came in and came out weren't carrying a body. And that everyone that arrived departed empty-handed, you know, not carrying a body. So, whether or not they saw the women who visited, I don't think we can say. In other words, the, the material here in 5 through 10, were they witnesses to that if they became like dead men in verse 4? Um, ambiguous, okay? Because they don't wake up till verse 11. While they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city. So the women that, that took off in verse 8, while, uh, while that uh, taken off had happened, then in verse 11, some of the guard came into the city. So maybe they, maybe they did see the women coming and going. And they got up and reported. 
And just now teaching it, I'm starting to think that's probably more likely. Becoming like dead men did not leave them unconscious and unaware. It just left them uh, stiff, immobile. And we'll find out when we get there. That'll be maybe my 400th question. Not a high priority, but if I, yeah, I'm kind of curious. Now, when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together. Okay, so now observe and consider with me what happens between verse 11 and verse 12. Put yourself now in the place of the chief priests. Uh, it's Sunday morning, and uh, you've had the guards have been out there since Friday, and this is now the third day. This is the day you're hoping to gloat. This is the day that you can't wait to uh, roll the stone away yourself and parade that dead body around saying, see, we killed him. And uh, first thing that happens is these guards show up. And they've got this story about an angel that you don't believe in because you're a Sadducee. <laughs> okay? They've got this story of resurrection that you also don't believe in because you don't believe in angels or, or resurrection. So you're a Sadducee. And so these Roman soldiers are lying to you, or you're not sure what they're, if they're lying or not. So you decide to assemble the elders and consult together. Verse 12, when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together. Now this is important because at this point now, they, uh, they're bringing the Pharisees into the picture. Those elders, by the way, are the Pharisees. I probably haven't mentioned that very well. And Arnold Fruchtenbaum does a great job. Uh, delineating between Sadducees and Pharisees in uh, in these episodes, the elders there are the highest ranking of the of the Pharisees. Remember, the Pharisees are not priests; they're scribes, they're lawyers, they're Bible experts, and they rank themselves in uh, in different classifications. And their their fathers or their elders are the uh, the leaders among them. And so the chief priests decide, this is something we can't handle. We don't believe in angels. We don't believe in resurrection. (laughs) Let's bring these Pharisees in. They do believe in angels. They do believe in the resurrection. And we've been working with them all this time anyway to kill Jesus. So they probably would want to know that uh, possibly Jesus is not still dead. Okay? Do they believe that? What do they know at this point? And what do they believe at this point? They're going to bribe and they're going to fund a lie. And they're going to know it's not a, they're going to know it's not the truth. They know that these soldiers didn't fall asleep. Why are they creating a lie? So they don't want to believe the truth. Okay? And yet they know they know who Jesus was. They know he was the Christ. But they convinced the people he was he was a heretic. They convinced the people he was a blasphemer. They convinced the people he was a false prophet. They said, he's not the Christ. They knew he was the Christ. Nicodemus testified to that. We know you're the Christ. We know you've been sent from God. No one can do these miracles you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus testified in John 3 that they knew full well who he was, and they killed him anyway. Now they know full well that he's not still dead. They know full well that he has come back to life. That's why I think it's not going to be too long and in the gospel of or in the book of Acts, very shortly, about chapter five or so, or 
for in those early chapters, a significant number of the priests get saved. A significant number of priests either get saved or cross into the church with a New Testament acceptance of Jesus as the Christ. Okay? And I think it's because they know the lie to be the lie. Anyway, this is all that comes into in between verses 11 and 12. In between verses 11 and 12, they assemble together with the elders and they consult together. And they come to a decision and they announce that decision in verse 12. That they're going to bribe the soldiers. They're going to pay them off. They're going to say, we're giving you a story and we're going to pay you well enough that you're going to stick to that story no matter what. And the soldiers go, okay. So, point three. The chief priests consulted with the elders to invent a myth and to fund a bribe. The chief priests consult with the elders. This is Sadducee, Pharisee, cooperation. Doesn't happen very often. The chief priest consulted with the elders to invent a myth and fund a bribe. One that uh, continues to this day. This Sadducee and Pharisee alliance has been working together against Jesus all week long. All week long. You back up to Matthew 21. They've been cooperating all week long. And actually before that, I think before that, each of the groups separately wanted him dead, but starting this week, they had active cooperation between themselves. Yeah, the Pharisees would have, or the Sadducees would have killed him last fall. The Sadducees wanted him dead at the Feast of uh, Booths, and yet they were afraid because of the crowds. I think the Pharisees would have probably put him to death in Perea if they could have gotten away with it. But all week long, they've had this alliance going, the Sadducee-Pharisee alliance. Like, what does it take to cause these guys to work together? What does it take for Democrats and Republicans to come together in, in Congress, right? What is it they all can agree on? Sadly, there's a few things. Okay. Um, not good. Yeah, there you go. Let's look back at some of these. Matthew 21, Matthew 26. We've seen this tandem of uh, priests and elders. Here he's making his triumphal entry in Matthew 21. And uh, let's see here. Kids are singing Hosanna. Verse 23, when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him while he was teaching, and they said, by what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Remember, authority was one of their big uh, tug-of-war issues. There were occasions when the Sadducees were pretty minimal in their authority. The Pharisees had domination within the Sanhedrin. Okay? Nicodemus was a ruler of the people as a Pharisee. There were other occasions when the Pharisees were kind of marginalized and the Sadducees held sway. The high priest was always a Sadducee. So there were seasons, there were occasions, there were times in which the Sadducee party had dominion and the Pharisees were a bit marginalized. And so here they're challenging him on the basis of authority. 
And so he turns it back on him. He says, I will also ask you one thing. If you tell me, I'll tell you. Answer my question, I'll answer yours. And then he gives them this question about John the Baptist, and they realize that it's a no-win for them. They can't answer. The baptism of John, was it from what source? Was it from heaven or was it from men? And they begin reasoning among themselves. And they say, well, hmm. If we say from heaven, then he'll say, why did you not believe him? If we say from men, now we're in trouble with the people because the people know that he's a prophet. So they tell Jesus, well, we don't know. We can't answer that. And he says, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And this is really a transition. This is a point where Jesus is just flat out obnoxious with them. He's, he's confrontational. He's rejecting their, you're not going to play their game. He's got too much to do this week. <laughs> All right. And it's, it is, it's interesting how he throws it back to them, throws it in their face. He'll have more of that in this coming week. He'll challenge them with scriptures they can't answer. He says, well, what about the Psalms where he calls them gods? He says, you are gods. Answer me that. It's very challenging towards them. Anyway, here they're cooperating. The uh, priests, the um, chief priests, and the elders. Over to chapter 26. Verse 3 says, Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas, and they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they were saying, Not during the festival, otherwise a riot might occur among the people. If they do it in broad daylight during the Passover, there could be a massive riot. Uh, same chapter down to verse 47. he's in the garden, he's praying with them, or they keep falling asleep. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs who came from the chief priests and the elders of the people. These are the the Roman guards and the temple guards, both, that uh, came to uh, arrest him in the garden. But there's the cooperation between the Sadducees and the Pharisees the chief priests and the elders. Down to verse 57, same chapter. Those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. You know, what brings them together this time of night? Well, we know. They want him dead. This is their ambush site. This is their, uh, this is the uh, fruition of their conspiracy. And, you know, ideally, if they can get this done before sunup, then, they're not going to be seen working together uh, by the folks. Matthew 27. Look at all those verses. Verse 1, verse 3, verse 12, verse 20, verse 41. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. Verse 3. Judas felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. Verse 12. While he was being accused, the chief priests and the elders, he did not answer. Verse 20. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and put Jesus to death. So it's interesting, the crowds that are all assembled there, some of them would be influenced by the Sadducees, some of them would be influenced by the Pharisees. But both groups now are being whipped up together to demand the release of Barabbas and the crucifixion of Christ. Verse uh, 41. They're mocking him while he's on the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and the elders, were mocking him. 
and saying he saved others, he cannot save himself. If he is the king of the Jews, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. Just come down off that cross and I'll believe in you. Liar. All right. I've had people tell me that, saying, well, he needs to come down from heaven and stand before me and prove to me who he is. And then I'll believe in him. No, you won't. I see how obstinate you are right now. Because he's already done that. He appeared to more than 500 at one time. He appeared to the apostles. He commissioned them to start the entire church age. Read what they wrote. Why would he come to you anyway? All right. And then finally in chapter 28, uh, where we are today, uh, they're bribing the soldiers to tell this lie. (laughs) You can almost imagine uh, their frustration you know, they, you kind of think that they would have uh, been able to dissolve their partnership two, three days ago on Friday, saying, we're sick of working with those guys. Can we go back to fighting each other now? <laughs> you know? Um, but no, no, I've got to keep cooperating. got to keep working with these guys. You know, it's almost like a, a nasty divorce, you know, where the, the man and the woman are like, can we quit fighting now? And then, no, we've got to keep fighting, you know, years after year after year after year. you got... You've got to keep working with these guys. All right. Well, so they put up the money and uh, they bribed the soldiers. Despite the reported act of God, despite the angel of God, the Sadducee and Pharisee alliance had no room for repentance and no option for truth. When the truth is not an option... You've got a problem. That right there tells you everything you need to know. Here's an act of God. It's like walking through the Red Sea. You walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. You got to the other side. And you're going to grumble in the wilderness? (laughs) When the God who parted the Red Sea could have just crashed it down on top of you? You're going to walk through that Red Sea, come to the other side, and you're going to grumble in the wilderness? Here's an act of God that raises, you you put him to death, and Jesus is now back alive. Here's a mighty angel that single-handedly rolled that stone away. (laughs) Despite the act of God, despite the angel, there's no room for repentance and there's no option for truth. They evaluate all their options, and this is, this is what they came to. You know, it's almost like they didn't weigh out five or six different options, including the truth and four other things. It's like the truth was totally off the table. And let's, let's consider these four other things and pick the best lie we can. Because the truth is, is you crucified the Christ. That's the truth. The Christ for human redemption, for the deliverance of Israel, right? God raised him up a prince and a savior. (laughs) You crucified him and now he's alive again. Consider your options. Like repentance, humbling yourself, 
being cut to the quick, rending your garments, like the crowd's going to start to do in chapter 2 when Peter starts preaching at him? Because Peter hits him and says, you crucified the Christ. Okay? Um, we've got a few minutes. Look at, look at Acts 2. And I think um, this, is, this is the reaction I would like to see in Matthew 28. We just don't. This happens uh, 50 days later on Pentecost. In the days following Pentecost and Peter's preaching here. And uh, they think they're drunk because of the, uh, the gift of tongues that's at work. Peter says, no, we're not drunk. This is Scripture being fulfilled. The Spirit's been poured out. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Verse 22. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. Okay? Now this, this group of chief priests and elders that we're looking at in Matthew 28, they, everything that Peter's speaking here could be applicable to them. Just as you yourselves know. Nicodemus admitted, we've seen these miracles, we hate them. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Say, you did it, but God planned it. It was God's purpose. Delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. The predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God fulfilled the purpose of God, but you villains now have to answer for what you've done. You put him to death, but God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. So you're serving Satan. You're a brood of vipers. You're serving the one who, through the fear of death, has that power of death over fallen mankind. Well, guess what? Your boss just got disarmed. Jesus could not be held in the power of death. For David says of him, and we have the quote here from Psalm 16, David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence. He is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Uh, Therefore my heart was glad, my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope because you will not allow my soul to Hades nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Scripture is fulfilled. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Then Peter uh, finishes his psalm quotation and then makes the application. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David, he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. (laughs) Psalm 16 is not about David. The Holy One that does not undergo decay is not David. It's the one that you killed but God raised up. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. Peter's got an awesome sermon going here. He's preaching on the resurrection and he's using Psalm 16 to do it. This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. The the, the 12 disciples, the apostles now are all witnesses. All right. Verse 36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain 
that God has made him both Lord and Christ. I would say here, Prince and Savior, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Now that's the reaction I would like to read in Matthew 28. It's the reaction he's getting among the multitudes. Peter's getting this reaction among the multitudes in Acts chapter 2. We would like to see that as the reaction among the chief priests and the elders in Matthew 28, but that's not what he receives. And so Peter then says to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. This is not a gospel message to unbelievers. This is a dispensational message after Pentecost for Old Testament Jews to have a change of thinking related to who Jesus is and then to identify with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ so as to be ushered into the uh, body of Christ, into the church. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You will become a New Testament believer instead of an Old Testament believer. All right, so back to Matthew 28 then. They had assembled with the elders and consulted together. (laughs) I'd like to be able to read there. They were pierced to the heart and said, what shall we do? We crucified the Christ and God has raised him up. No, they don't say that. What shall we do? How can we salvage this? So despite the reported act of God and the angel of God, the Sadducee and Pharisee alliance had no room for repentance and no option for truth. So they offer a bribe. Not only do they offer a bribe, they also give assurances. Along with a bribe, the chief priests gave their assurance to cover things over with Pontius Pilate. Sometimes the bribe is not sufficient. You also need political favors. The money's nice, but political favors are also nice. Along with the bribe, the chief priests gave their assurance to cover things over with Pontius Pilate. So more lies to cover more lies. And even in this lie to cover a lie, I think it too is a lie. I don't believe for a minute that the chief priests and the elders intend to cover for them. I believe that they want these soldiers dead as quick as possible. I suspect that the first chance they get, they're going to go report to Pilate that the guards fell asleep. (laughs) They're going to demand that Pilate execute those guards. Fewer witnesses. Okay? (laughs) So, you know... When the unbeliever is tempting you to sin and starting to give you all the reasons why it'll be okay, there aren't any consequences, it'll be all right, nobody will know. Just understand that uh, that those brood of vipers that are promoting you to defy the will of God um, have no reason to be truthful because they're serving the one who is the liar from the beginning. Why would you believe what they're telling you? All right. <laughs> so along with a bribe comes the assurance to cover things over. We will win him over and we will keep you out of trouble. And they actually believe it. They took the money and did as had been instructed. Isn't that something? Well, too bad for them. The lie itself is a contradiction. 
The lie itself is a contradiction. If they were sleeping, how do they know what happened? And if they were awake, why do they let it happen? <laughs> okay? And if you were asleep, how do you know it was the disciples that came and stole away the body? How do you know what happened? And if you were awake, why did you let it happen? The lie itself doesn't make any sense. But you know what? The unbelievers don't care. The lie doesn't have to make sense. They just, because they'll believe it anyway. Show them all the flaws with Big Bang. They don't care. Show them all the flaws with Darwinian evolution. They don't care. They'll believe it anyway. Because the alternative is, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that is just not acceptable. Okay? So we believe, you know, in the beginning, bang. The lie itself is a contradiction, but they don't care. I found it interesting. The uh, <laughs> different aspects on this, the consequences that continue to this day. Point four is the consequences. <clears throat> we have a consequence passage right here in verse 15. This story was widely spread among the Jews. And it is to this day. This story was widely spread among the Jews. So every time a Christian tried to give the gospel related to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Jews have already heard in their synagogues, in their, in their, uh, among their circles, they've already heard that it was the disciples of Jesus who stole the body. And so they've got a prejudiced uh, way of thinking even before they hear the testimony to the resurrection. It was a consequence that uh, lasted even to this day, we're told in verse 15. What's this day? The writing of the Gospel of Matthew. That's right. When Matthew put quill to parchment and actually composed these 28 chapters under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit. And we understand the canonization of the Bible. But on the day that Matthew sat down and composed this gospel, whatever length of time that was, I, I think it was likely in the 40s. I mean, I'm, I'm one of the earlier guys. Some people like gospels later than that. I, you know, I've, I have, there's no reason why it could not have been written in the 40s. Really no reason why it could have been written in the 30s. But there's some kind of time that's gone by, as it is to this day. So did 10 years go by? Did 20 years go by? How long was it before the Holy Spirit started inspiring books of the Bible? Okay, we know James and Thessalonians were pretty early. They were in the 40s. So uh, if Paul was writing in the 50s, and uh, why could the Gospels not have been written in the in the 40s? Luke traveled with Paul, and Luke wrote his Gospels and Acts in the 60s. So um, if Paul was doing all his writing in the 50s and 60s, and um, the Gospel of Luke had to have been in the, in the 60s, maybe Matthew and Mark were in the 40s and 50s. Anyway, consequences of this event. The stolen body myth spread widely up to the day of the Gospel's composition. In early church history, this mythology is encountered in Justin Martyr's dialogue with Trypho. If you ever read the Church Fathers, or you read, read the uh, uh, writings of Justin Martyr, his dialogue with Trypho, one of the early apologetics. Trypho was Jewish, all right? And uh, Justin was 
describing the resurrection of Christ, describing the the uh, accuracy of the of the Christian testimony. As I have time, I can read that to you here. I do have time because all we have left is a B, four A and four B. Here's the dialogue with Trifo. Probably too small. Do you want it in Greek? I think I can put it up there in Greek, but we'll, we'll just leave it there in English. And though all the men of your nation knew the incidents in the life of Jonah, and though Christ said amongst you that he would give the sign of Jonah, exhorting you to repent of your wicked deeds, at least after he rose again from the dead, and to mourn before God as did the Ninevites, in order that your nation and city might not be taken and destroyed as they have been destroyed, yet you have not repented. After you learned that he rose from the dead, but as I said before, you have sent chosen and ordained men throughout all the world to proclaim that a godless and lawless heresy had sprung from one Jesus, a Galilean deceiver whom we crucified, but his disciples stole him by night from the tomb where he was laid when unfastened from the cross and now deceive men by asserting that he has risen from the dead and ascended to heaven. So you see here, Justin is describing for Trifo what it is that the Jewish nation at large has done. They have sent chosen and ordained men throughout the world. Isn't that amazing? Prior to this, when did the Jews ever send chosen and ordained men anywhere? They were, they were the stewards, but they didn't go globally to, to bring people to Jerusalem. They, they kept themselves in Jerusalem and said, well, if a God-fearer shows up, we'll proselytize them. But now they're motivated to go to the ends of the earth. It's interesting. Moreover, you accuse him of having taught those godless, lawless, and unholy doctrines which you mentioned in the condemnation of those who uh, confess him to be Christ and a teacher from teacher from and son of God. Besides this, even when your city is captured and your land ravaged, you do not repent, but dare to utter imprecations of him and all who believe in him. Yet we do not hate you or those who by your means have conceived such prejudices against us, but we pray that even now all of you may repent and obtain mercy from God, the compassionate and long-suffering Father of all. <laughs> That's one of the earliest testimonies, one of the earliest apologetic works, Christian works, and it was directed towards Jewish unbelievers, the very ones that were perpetuating this myth that um, that uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees concocted here in Matthew 28. It continues to this day. The stolen body myth remains a popular canard among 21st century atheists. The stolen body myth remains a popular canard among the 20, among today's modern 21st century atheists. In fact, there's a recent publication out there called um, The Empty Tomb, Jesus Beyond the Grave. It was written in answer to uh, William Lane Craig, William, uh, written in answer to a lot of the Christian philosophers and apologists today. It features an assortment of different unbelieving atheist contributors. And chapter 9 of that book, written by Richard Carrier, is titled The Plausibility of Theft. (laughs) The Plausibility of Theft. And it's all about, sure, it's reasonable that the disciples could have stolen the body. 
At least we can't prove they didn't. <laughs> and uh, they, they, this is this is one of their flagship products in in uh, the last decade. You can, uh, you can go to Amazon and read the uh, reviews. Highly praised by the God haters. Okay, they think, ha, you know, they've they've that's the final word. And those moron Christians like William Lane Craig that still believe that the uh, resurrection is the most likely. Um, explanation for the for the uh, empty grave, right? So, well, sure, the grave was empty, but probably because they stole the body. Can't prove that they didn't. Anyway, the uh, flawed logic is uh, something to behold. All right, well, there it is. The guards report of the resurrection, episode five in the uh, resurrection ministry of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for this time together today, for all of your faithfulness. We do thank you for our risen Savior. Father, the, the very hatred that this world has against the simple truth speaks volumes, Father. It shows that they, uh, they don't want the truth. They, they're afraid of the truth, Father. Their deeds are evil. They love darkness rather than light. It's compatible with their nature, Father. And I pray that we would come to identify that and not... Uh, view it any other way than father with the compassion of our savior to look upon them as sheep without a shepherd to look upon them as as uh, the sick that are in need of a physician to look at them as the lost that need a savior and to have the uh, the heart that our savior had to pray on their behalf to become intercessors praying fervently that uh, that the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit would be active, that the drawing of the Son and the drawing of the Father would be active, and that we might have our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. So, Father, um, thank you for this truth. Thank you for this gospel. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.